Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, unpacking Vice President Kamala Harris's don't come message, cutting off recovery checks to address a labor shortage and the Asheboro High School graduation that's sparked debate about the value of order and tradition versus individual expression. We'll talk about it, stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. On a recent visit to Guatemala, Vice President Kamala Harris kicked off her work on immigration with a clear message to the Central Americans seeking asylum in the U.S. And it's raised the attention of progressives, conservatives, and the American public. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. We have invited attorney David Mufuka, a lawyer specializing in immigration law, to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, attorney Mufuka. We also know that you are a member of North Carolina Advocates for Justice. Can you share with us your thoughts about the message behind what uh, Vice President Harris said and why it was so problematic, particularly for progressives? Thank you so much for having me on the program. So the message has to be taken in its full context. I believe that Vice President Harris was specifically talking about the prospect of illegal immigration at the border. So right now the soundbite is getting a lot of attraction because it seems to be focused only on uh, immigration broadly, but she really was talking about illegal immigration right at the border. And the problem that seems to be emanating with the progressives is really in her choice of language and her tone, of which that is something that is stemming from the trauma of the previous administration. So everybody on the progressive side, they were looking for a much more different tone and rhetoric. And that's what the problem is regarding her statement. Well, with regard to what American policy is and the challenge that's been placed squarely on her shoulders to, to kind of fix the border problem, to fix immigration policy, what is it that um, Americans need to understand about the task before her in terms of, of changing policy and making it uh, easier, perhaps, for people to come into uh, the country, particularly from uh, Central America? So that question is also has a lot of moving parts. But the most important thing for people to understand is that Vice President Harris really has just over three years to try and fix a problem that's been going on for a very, very long time. She probably will not be able to fix it all because that will pretty much take a miracle. There's just not enough time, but she can advance the administration's policies as far as, as far as she can, basically. And then the other thing that the American public needs to understand is that the full spectrum of immigration law is determined by Congress. The administration is only tasked with following through with what Congress has set already. And right now what we have is a model that is family-based and some call it archaic and in need of reform. So some of the focus that's being placed on the administration is really misdirected. They really should be talking to Congress to create a whole entire overhaul of the system to make it more updated, basically. 
Well, let's turn to looking at what's happening in Central America. And some people have said, well, many, certainly, that if the issues that uh, get fixed in Central America actually, you know, get fixed, then that's going to impact the number of people wanting to migrate into uh, the United States. Things like public public safety and also the economy. So what, what should the American interest be in trying to, to imp, uh, influence some of that? And what have, what's been problematic about the current policies? The issues that are going on in Central America regarding instability have always found their ways into the United States. So the United States is heavily invested in ensuring there's some form of stability just to protect its own domestic situation inside the US. The best way to do it in theory and in practice is actually to fix the governments. So obviously the US is limited in what it can actually do, but showing support for those governments to just find a more stable and democratic process is the most effective way of fixing the problem that shows up at our borders but, ha but haven't some of the foreign policy tactics that are currently in place in Central America helped to exasper exacerbate the problem and sort of, you know, cause people or make it a less friendly place to want to be and people just would want to come to the U U.S.? That is correct. So there's been a lot of trouble in that area, and that really has led to a lot of what we see now, those surges, those caravans that are making their way to the United States borders, it's definitely impacted by the instability in those countries. And how much of this is tied to race, you think? I mean, it would be a different thing, certainly, to have um, folks from across the waters, you know, coming into the United States. They can't very easily come in by plane and so forth. So you have, we have the geographic uh, ease of being able to um, have folks coming from Central America into the U.S. But, you know, there's this idea that there needs to be a control of the uh, number or the volume of people migrating from that area into the United States. How much of a problem or an issue do you think race plays in our tolerance and the concern for making sure that we secure the border? Race definitely plays a factor in how the policies are enacted uh, in, these, in these administrations. If you look at the Trump administration, he was quite clear about his preference for European-based immigrants. He called the uh, non-European countries the a-hole countries, direct quote, and that was filtered into his policies where he pretty much closed the borders to some uh, non-European countries and while speaking favorably uh, for the European countries. So a lot of that filters into the direct policies and we see it in effect. Immigration on a whole, like I already said, it's a matter for Congress. And it affects everybody, whether you are from a European-based or a non-European-based country. But like I said, that has not been fixed for a very, very long time. So the actual big laws that affect the majority of immigration has not been done. But the policy is where race plays the biggest factor. Well, no doubt, Vice President Kamala Harris has a lot on her hands. So we thank you for your insights. Attorney David Bufuka. Thank you for having me.
As more people get vaccinated and states open back up, many are finding a shortage of employees. Some say it's because too many people are making more money sitting at home collecting an American Rescue unemployment check. So lawmakers are pushing bills to end the checks now rather than receive them through September. So far, 25 states have approved measures to do so, but they're also wanting to redirect those funds to offer incentive checks for people who do get back to work. Let's check in with our roundtable on this. I want to welcome political analyst Ed Haynes, chair of North Carolina Conservative Black Voices, Adul Ali, and the president and CEO of Substantial Media, LLC, Greg Hedgepath. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming uh, and being a part of the conversation. Greg, let me open with you. What is the situation here uh, in North Carolina in terms of what lawmakers are offering to do? No, thank you for having me on, uh, Deborah. And I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I truly believe that we're in this uh, like paradox right now of there are 8 million less jobs than there were prior to the pandemic yet we don't have enough people willing to actually fill those positions. And let's be clear, while, you know, the easy solution is, you know, folks aren't, aren't going back to work simply because they're getting an additional benefit. Uh, I think that is, you know, and cutting that benefit off is kind of applying a, a speedboat uh, solution to a Titanic-type problem. Um, and so when we think about who those folks are, those are the folks that, that are receiving that additional benefit or have been unemployed probably for some time uh, since March 2020, if not prior to that. Um, and then outside of that, uh, you know, I think there are a number of factors that are contributing to why, to some degree, they're receiving that unemployment benefit. What well, we know that, you know, those high-paying jobs, there's a, there's a huge uh, 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 demand and, and challenge to, to actually have those, but it's those lower-paying uh, hourly wage uh, jobs that I believe we're beginning to see those shortages. Um, well, let me, let me bring you in here, Adul. Um, is there a labor shortage out there? I mean, it's obvious as I've traveled across the state over the last few months, as things have started to open back up, uh, like the brother just said, you know, those hourly restaurant type workers, service industry type jobs are are short on staff. You know, I've seen uh, talk to multiple business owners who have had to cut the hours at their business, thus cutting their own revenue because they don't have enough workers. I've had I've been in, you know, hardware stores, locally owned hardware stores where folks just don't have the people um, to, to, you know, service the customers that want to get serviced. I think one of the biggest things we have to look at, especially in the black community, is we need to stop looking at these low skilled, you know, low, uh, low hourly rate jobs as a career. These should be looked at as stepping stone opportunities. You know, nobody should be looking at a fast food job as a long term career. And I think we've just got to kind of shift our thinking about what those jobs actually mean and what they should be used for. Well, Ed, let me ask you about, you know, those particular jobs and the fact that, you know, the hospitality industry is very large here in North Carolina. Does the hospitality industry need to be, you know, providing maybe incentives to get folks back to work? Is there a shortage? What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's no question about it. And I, and I think you make a, a very good point. And a lot of the a lot of the narrative around the uh, around uh, there being a lack of jobs is driven by highly active and very good uh, restaurant and hospitality uh, lobbying 
uh, coalition around the country. And so we are looking at about half of the jobs around the country in those 8 million uh, that do not exist right now or that are empty right now. About half of them are in restaurants and hospitality industry. And so uh, that drives a narrative, but really, really also does is, is, is it keeps us away from focusing on the fact that there are people who are in high paying jobs before the pandemic that were cut during the pandemic that simply can't and maybe perhaps shouldn't go into uh, waitressing or hosting jobs in restaurants and taking uh, available jobs from uh, more qualified workers uh, and they're in putting the restaurant and lodging and, uh, and hospitality industry in situations where they're going to have to, they're going to lose these people, they're going to have to retrain these people, and we already understand that that's the most expensive thing that a business owner can do. And so, you know, while uh, I, I, I agree wholly that we uh, absolutely have a job shortage or uh, we have a, uh, a, a worker shortage out there right now, there are 8 million jobs available, uh, and there are lots of people out of work, but we have to make sure, I believe, that people are really getting into the right jobs at the right times. Well, Greg, you know, when it comes to getting people into the right jobs and so forth, and we take a look at the overall economy, what could be the impact of cutting off benefits right now in order to try to drive people into the labor market? What could be the, the larger economic impact? Well, first and foremost, let's be uh, uh, honest with ourselves, right? Got money, we'll spend it. Right. Uh, and so when we begin to think about the stimulus uh, package and, and the reason why these dollars have been given, uh, it is to ensure that the economy, that folks are out here spending money. Right. So every person that right now is receiving that additional benefit of maybe three hundred dollars a week or so, uh, they're spending those dollars. Right. You think about the gas shortage that just recently happened. Right. If I'm not if I'm unemployed, I don't have the funds. How am I getting the gas? Right? Uh, how am I? How am I doing these bare necessities? Uh, going to the grocery store uh, for those folks that are still in that local restaurant industry. Uh, how am I going uh, uh, and, and indulging on a weekend, if you will, uh, the fast food? So, to some degree, let's be clear: the economy, the states that are even lobbying, if you will, to have uh, these unemployment benefits cut off, they have benefited from the fact that these folks are getting uh, this unemployment uh, benefit. But if you cut off the unemployment benefit, there are people who are at home right now who wouldn't be spending that money, yes, but take students, for example, they, they're the ones who would be forced back into the, the labor market because now they're not making that money and they might even have student loan repayments. I don't know. I, I, I'll be completely honest with you. I think uh, it's kind of that ebb and flow that's beginning to happen, right? When we think about the contributing factors that have caused a lot of people right now to say, hey, uh, I have reassessed where I am in life because COVID has given me an opportunity to pause. I'm either going to go back and get a two-year degree, some kind of technical training. I'm going to go to a four-year institution and acquire the education necessary to live out whatever that American dream is that everybody says I get once I go out and get an education. And so now, as as the brother had said, I am going to take a pause from this hourly wage, low income job to begin to pursue those things necessary to fulfill what I believe is a more, if you will, fulfilling life, right? Right, right. But so let me get a duel in here. You know, if we cut off these checks, is the effect going to be what people, people expect, that we're going to get more people coming into this uh, jobs market and filling those jobs that are out there that people desperately need to get filled? Well, I, I think there's the potentiality for that. And like the brother said, there's an ebb and flow in that. I think uh, this is a symptom of a bigger problem, which is government's hand 
in the private markets. Um, you know, this is a lot of this has to do with the federal government having its hand in markets that sh shouldn't have their hands in. I think the danger, uh, more specifically from what I'm seeing on the ground, is that we get painted with this broad paintbrush that it's black people that don't want to, and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty in this is that, sure, we want those dollars to stimulate the economy. But the, my question would be, and just to play devil's advocate a little bit, if we were to subsidize or give those dollars to people already working and say, hey, if you're already working, here's an extra 300 bucks a month, would that motivate people to get back into the labor market? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I agree with the brother. It's an ebb and flow. It's kind of a give and take. It's a touchy thing. But I, I think it's a symptom of the problem of the feds having their hands in private market where we shouldn't. Um, last thing I'll say on this is, it, you know, the framers of the Constitution did not set this government up to be a welfare system. That's not what they, you know, this is the furthest thing that they had in their minds is government supporting individuals' day-to-day -day lives. It's not what this country was set up to be. I think we need to continue to set people up for success in their individual capacities. And I don't see the government checks are the way to do that. Well, Ed, let me get your thoughts on that as well yeah. as this whole idea of shifting the money to an incentive-based kind of program. Hey, look, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you frankly that, uh, I, I say thank God that the government uh, has put their hands in the market at times uh, in our country's past and current uh, state, especially as it uh, has impacted uh, the black community over the years. Uh, what I'll also say is that, look, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, coming from the state uh, going to industries to backlog losses. All that stuff is happening across the country. So why, so why couldn't or why shouldn't the government uh, have their hand uh, in the economy at this point to backlog the losses of everyday workers who are out there trying to make it happen, who lost their jobs during the pandemic, who are absolutely, as the brother said, going to spend that money and put it back in the community, but they're going to put it in daycare. They're going to put it in day-to-day -day, uh, resources. They're going to put it in the helping family members who are you know, also hurting. This is what we do, you know, in our community. Uh, this stuff is not just coming back and just going to sit in one household. As we all know, these dollars are going to be passed on from home to home and from street to street and into community stores and whatnot. So uh, in terms of money being shifted around, um, you know, thank God the government is there at this point to help people. Well, and, and, you know, that brings me to talking about women. There are a lot of women out there who've had to leave the workplace and are not going back in because there's a school situation, perhaps, mm -hmm. and they've got children at home and can't afford to go get a job that doesn't pay enough for them to afford the daycare to take care of the kids. Yeah. So that incentive isn't going to necessarily help you for the two months you know, of, of this low-paying job. And isn't it more important to try to do something to raise raise minimum wages or raise wages, period? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, think that's a, I think that's a great point, and it, and it kind of is going to get into another point. I know that we're getting to uh, a little bit later, but listen, uh, we're not going to know for years, for a couple of years, the impact that COVID has had on children. Uh, who had to sit at home and be at home by themselves sometimes or, or most of the time and the emotional impact that that had on mothers across the community, no, no matter what your race you know, is, but from community to community, the impact, the emotional impact that had on mothers and fathers who were forced to leave their children at home. And in this certain situation where for the first time perhaps in these people's lives, uh, they have an opportunity to make a choice as to whether to spend that time, spend this money and spend that time uh, helping their kids, finding uh, some tutoring, finding some daycare uh, opportunities for their kids and doing that for as long as they can. 
it's very hard to tell a parent not to do that. That's good. Deborah, if I could just real quickly uh, speak to what you just said. And at, at the end of the day, I think what these uh, additional dollars have done is given those traditionally that have been unempowered, disenfranchised, ununionized uh, an option. Right. Like and, and a lot of times what we know is that those employers that are complaining right now about that kind of labor shortage, those hourly jobs, those are the types of folks that occupy them. And so what they now have is an option. They now have an option to say, hey, I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to help my child. Uh, uh, my child's daycare is now shut down. So I don't have to now figure out if I'm going to do X and Y. And, and grandmother can't watch my child because, what, only 48 percent of, of the entire uh, uh, population has been vaccinated at this point, and that's adults. And so when you start to think about these other contributing factors, you immediately begin to understand that there is is a, a larger thing at play here, and it is not the easy solution. Well, there are definitely some options. Well, it's graduation season, and just as so many graduates have been taking on the thrill of attending graduation in person and being handed that diploma, Ashboro garners national attention when the story about a high school student who decided to drape the Mexican flag around his gown as he went up to receive his diploma was denied his diploma, and instead the principal of the school had his family escorted out of the ceremony by police. The crime not abiding by the graduation dress code. Since the story broke, though, the school has issued the young man his diploma. But the big question remains, who was out of order? Why? And did the consequence fit the transgression? Gentlemen, let me start with you, Ed. What are your thoughts on this? It's the biggest self-inflicted wound by a school administrator, I think, uh, I have I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. uh, the the follow-up uh, when the family goes to retrieve the diploma and they're refused and confronted with the police is, is even worse. Uh, I tell you, I, I saw the apology uh, issued from the school. Um, I saw the statement of the young man. I still have not seen uh, any policy that the school system has released yet. Uh, Neither to, have to I. Show, uh, no, one, no one has seen this policy. Only read you know, about it. Only, only read about the, you know, the, that it allegedly exists. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but, but look, this is, I, I can tell you, um, I lived in Asheboro for six or seven years and uh, as an adult. And I can tell you, frankly, uh, that the children, the black children uh, on, who live on the hill are not treated like the students from the mountain. And the Hispanic students are treated even worse. And so these are, this is something that when Asheboro City School says, you know, we're a welcoming environment and we're doing all the things that, you know, we need to do, uh, I would tell them that they need, to, they need to take a look and actually talk to some of these kids in the communities who attend their school and who have to deal uh, with this type of situation now, almost on a daily basis. Our last four years of politics have not helped. Uh, you know, that situation there, it's a real issue and now something very troubling to see in 2021. But, you know, one of the arguments is, you know, that also that we have a new generation that we're dealing with right now and it's about individualism. But then there's the argument about, listen, there was a, a there's tradition out there, there's decorum, there are rules, there are dress codes. Greg, but also uh, you have some history with the area as well. I want to get your thoughts. Hey, listen, at the end of the day, uh, I, I completely agree with what, what, what my fellow panelists said. Um, I'll share, though, uh, we are right now trying to fit an evolving society into old, outdated systems. 
right? Like it, it, at, at the at the prime of what this is for me, uh, it is an opportunity for us to look at some of the policies, some of the rules, regulations, guidelines that we have on the books and begin to cut through some of this red tape and bureaucracy, right? You know, at the end of the day, there is that 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 administrator held up whatever that policy was, right? Written, not written, spoken, unspoken. Uh, and so on face value, what she did was right, right? There was a policy, I enforced it, right? Shoes and shirt required type what of thing. What she did was right in terms of the level of, of punishment. Did she have to tell no. him no diploma right now? Did she have no. to have the uh, police escort the family out? These children have been through a lot this year. No, no. That, I, that, let's be let's be clear on what I'm saying. I'm saying for for face value, what she did. If there is a policy on the books, right, then that policy exists and that policy was upheld. But now, as far as the action, warning, the crime, no, right? Or, or the, the, the so so for me, it's a matter of looking at some of those policies, some of those things that are on the books, and beginning to think about how we begin to change those. Let me right? bring you in here, Adul, for your comments. So I'd look. I agree with the brothers in that that was a bit much. Calling the cop, that that that's going a little too far. I'm, I'm as patriotic as the next guy, but I, I don't think calling the cops and having the family escorted out was there. But on the same on the same token, what country are you getting your diploma in? You're not getting your diploma in Mexico. How many graduations in Mexico am I going to go to and find an American flag draped around a high school kid in Mexico? And I dare say none. Well, how about, a, how about an American flag draped around a kid here? So would the reaction have been that, the now, same? That was my point is, would that would we have this conversation if it was an American flag? No. And, and I, I, I doubt that we would have. I <laughs> doubt that we would have. I'll be, I'll be but, honest. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What I was going to simply say is I think we've got to, I, I was, I agree with y'all in that they treated him wrong. Having his family escorted out like that was embarrassing. I think it was a bit much, but at the same time, we do have standards. We do have decorum. We should be looking to try to instill that in our students when we graduate. Good luck on going to a job interview for a job that you want and dressing however you want when they have a dress code for that job. Good luck on going into a five-star restaurant that has a dress code and you're completely out of that dress code getting into that five-star restaurant. So That's right. I, I just think so, it was a bit, a bit of an you. overreaction. I hear you. So, and Adul Ali, I'm, I'm sorry, we have to wrap it up right now, but Adul Ali, Ed Haynes, Greg Hedgepath, thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find all of our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.